for how you sustain, how you, uh, during this time, uh, I just up and disappeared for two months. Uh, the Lord took me out of the picture with, uh, I was diagnosed on, or tested on December the 18th and absolutely shocked to find out that I had uh, COVID. And Terry tested positive, uh, tested negative at the same time, stayed up close and personal with a COVID patient for two weeks. She, you know, and never had any signs and tested negative, has been tested several times since then and tested negative. I want to thank you for your prayers. Uh, they, you know, you know when people are praying for you. And it was very obvious to me and to Terry, uh, your prayers for us. Uh, COVID did not last that long. I had a high fever for eight days, seven or eight days, uh, and was generally miserable. Um, but what came after it was just shocking. I, I was just left completely exhausted. And it wasn't an, an emotional thing. It wasn't that I was depressed. There was no anxiety. I, I couldn't walk from one room to the other uh, without sitting down. It would just, it, I would just be out of breath at the least little thing I did. Uh, and this continued for, for several weeks. Uh, as I said, this time last week, I told Terry, I said, oh, sure, I'm not preaching this morning. And this morning I could not, I woke up early and I could not wait uh, to get here and, and be with you. But thank you for your notes, for food you brought by, for your prayers, uh, all of that, uh, it, it, it means so much. There's so many ways in telling people that you care for them. Sometimes we do it joking with each other. Uh, and it doesn't sound like we're saying that as we tease each other. Um, but there's so many ways of saying and expressing your care. And uh, you certainly did. And not only to me and not only to Terry, but to people throughout the congregation. Um, I just want to commend you for that. Have you got that battery? I'm going to make you come up here. I'm saving all the energy I can. Thank you. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you, and I especially thank you that this day is here. Oh, Father, 
we thank you together for the gift of worship. Many of us have had to be absent, uh, some because uh, we were sick, some uh, because they were being cautious. Some of us were being cautious, uh, and it was caution that was deserved. Uh, Our Father, we continue to pray that you would keep us and keep our people from this. Don't let us lose a one, Father, to this disease. But we thank you. We thank you for worship. One thing we've learned during this time, even though we worshiped in our homes uh, and, and knew your presence, it wasn't like being together with your people and singing the hymns of Zion and rejoicing together in Scripture, in your word, in your presence. Oh, Father, thank you for that precious promise that you made that where two or three gather, that you would be in their midst. We bow before you as priests this morning. We pray for Carol Ray, that you would bring healing to her. We pray for Tom Edwards, that you would bring healing to him. These clots that have formed, Father, we pray that they would be removed this week. There would be no trace of them. We pray that you would continue to heal him from uh, this cancer. Bless him, Father. Bless Elaine as she cares for him. We thank you for their lives. And now as we come to open your word, oh, Father, teach us. Teach us. May we hear your voice in our hearts. John Sartell cannot teach so that it will make any difference. And oh, Father, we've heard you before. We're your children. And we're simply saying, teach us again, Father. Teach us again. For the glory of Christ your Son, we pray. Amen. The great lie. Holiness is boring. Is a boring and unhappy Life. Charles Ponzi, an Italian, he was born Carlo Pietro Giovanni Ponzi. He immigrated to the United States in 1903. He moved from job to job until he hit upon the scheme of buying postal reply notes in other countries and redeeming them here in this country. Postal reply notes were of lesser value in other countries. Here they were of greater value. He would buy them there, sell them here. It was a form of arbitrage. He started a company to do this. He offered investors 50% profit in 45 days. 100% profit in 90 days. Now, he could not possibly buy that many postal notes. There was no way to physically do this. But he was a salesman, and people bought into his plan. He would pay off the investors using the money of new investors. 
As people discovered that he could fulfill his promise of 50% or 90% profit, the people of Boston and New England flocked to him and to his company. At one point, he was taking in $250,000 a day. Now, that was in 1920. His scheme would be short-lived, and those investors would lose $20 million. Now, $20 million in 1920 would be $250 million in 2021. He was arrested and convicted, spending almost 10 years in jail. Today, such a ruse is called a Ponzi scheme. He was so infamous, a crime was named for him. That's not how you want to be known, people. Think, though, think of what Ponzi's lies cost his investors. Thousands lost their retirement, lost their houses, lost their life savings. Not being able to identify a lie can be costly. There's a lie that the world has bought into in every generation. It's critical. Satan and sin have proved to be the premier deceivers in this scheme. It is the title of our message this morning, The Big Lie. Holiness is a boring and unhappy life. Does this ever have to do with where we are in our culture? Exclamation point, not question mark. Here is a loosely worded quote from Randy Alcorn. Listen carefully. In Western Europe and the United States, that's us, popular culture shouts that high moral standards are foolish, unfulfilling, and narrow-minded. They are human constructs. These high moral standards are man-made. And such standards are contrary to happiness. This lie has been remarkably effective. This is, this is Randy Alcorn. This lie has been remarkably effective. We are forced to choose between sinning to be happy and abstaining from happiness through wearing a moral straitjacket. End quote. What is most distressing is that many Christians have bought into this lie or some version of it. It's not just scattered through the church. It's prevalent in the church. Let me ask you, honestly, this morning, you're in high school, college, younger, elementary school. No matter your age, do you really think that biblical holiness leads to happiness. Not happiness in heaven later, but happiness right now. Are holiness and happiness 
synonymous in your mind. At one time in my life, they weren't. Would it surprise you this morning to learn, would it surprise you to learn that the Bible teaches that holiness and happiness are inextricably entwined? If that's true, if that's truly biblical, where did the lie that holiness is a boring and unhappy life originate? Where did it come from? <laughs> we find it right at the beginning. What was it Satan said to Eve? Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat the fruit of any tree in the garden? Now, that was deceptive in itself. That's not what God said. Satan knew exactly what God had said. God had told Adam and Eve they could eat of any tree in the garden. Any tree was theirs except one. And Eve corrected Satan. But he continued to perpetrate his lie. Eve, you shall surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, Oh, Eve, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. What was Satan saying? Eve, God does not have your best interest in mind here. He's not interested in you being happy and fulfilled. His way will restrict you. It's dull. Holiness is boring, Eve. It's, it's unhappy. He was attacking the goodness of God. The goodness of God and his creation. Our subject in October and November was sanctification. That's what brings us to this subject, this final lesson. In the New Testament Greek, the word for sanctification and the word for holiness it's the same word. Sanctification is the process by which we become holy. Sanctification should describe how we live. It should describe how all of us, if we're Christians, it should describe how all of us live. Now, justification, the fact of Jesus dying for our sin and declaring us righteous, that really doesn't visibly mark the difference in the daily life that we live. It's sanctification. It's sanctification, the process that comes after justification, the process of God working in our lives toward holiness, to sanctify us. It marks the difference between the daily life of the world and the daily life of the Christian. One of the most frequent responses that I hear from people in the world as I speak to them about Christ, I hear, I hear it all, you know, constantly. Sometimes they're actually attracted by Christ, the Christ of the Gospels. But they reply, John, I don't want to give up the way I'm living. They're really making two claims when they say that. 
First, they're saying what the Bible calls sin is the way to happiness. And I'm glad I'm there. It's the way to live life to the fullest. Secondly, they're saying following Christ would be boring. It certainly would not lead to a happy life for me. In the passage before us this morning, in John 15, Jesus is, is speaking to disciples about sanctification. Now, many people miss this in looking at this passage. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about sanctification. Jesus is speaking of the believer being in Christ. He says that we're in Christ, and he uses the metaphor of a vine in a garden. Now, the Father is the vine dresser, and Christ pictures himself as the vine. And we are the branches. We're the limbs attached to him. And he says we're supposed to bear fruit, that if we're attached to him, we, we will bear fruit. Well, what happens? What happens when a, when a branch breaks away from the vine? Branch dies. He says that if we don't abide in him, we cannot bear fruit. We cannot bear good fruit living a life isolated from him. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want you to consider this because most people miss it. What is the fruit of which Jesus is speaking? Many times this passage is used in mission conferences to speak to us of being witnesses out in the world and the people that are converted will be the fruit. They'll be our fruit, the fruit of our lives. The point being that the fruit we produce is people coming from the world to Christ. But Jesus, even though it can be included here, Jesus is really speaking of the entire life that we live in Christ. It's not just about evangelism. He is speaking of sanctification, the holiness of our lives. How does he affect that holiness? How does that attachment, what comes into our lives from Christ? The Holy Spirit does. We know that over and over again, we're taught that the Holy Spirit not only changes our heart, but he indwells us. The Holy Spirit indwelling us is being in Christ. That's part of it. So what fruit does the Holy Spirit produce? What fruit does Christ produce? That's the question. You should know by now, we say it all the time here at Christ Presbyterian, you should know Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It's on your scripture sheet. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, the fruit of which Christ spoke is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Well, doesn't the world have, isn't the world able to love? Surely. But the Holy Spirit brings that in such power that we love differently. There's an extraordinary supernatural love, joy, peace, patience that comes from our lives. It's a, it is a great, incredible, wonderful fruit. That's what the process of sanctification is producing, and that's what Christ is saying here. I'm about to trim the forsythia bushes in our yard on the south side of our house. I planted them years ago, have paid little attention to them, 
And they have just, it's bad so long. I don't know how they've done it. I hadn't fertilized them, but they have exploded. And there's these tentacles going all over the place from those forsythia bushes. I've got to cut those back. Early in the spring, forsythia bushes, as you know, have these beautiful yellow blooms that just explode in those bushes. It's beautiful. So I'm cutting those bushes before early spring in the next couple of weeks. And there'll be stems all over. There'll be branches all over on the ground. Now, if I leave those branches, you know, I gather them up and throw them in the trash. But if I just leave them on the ground there, will those branches bloom? Nope, they will not bloom. They're dead. They, they can't receive the nutrients coming up from the root through the branches from the body of the bush. Jesus is saying, apart from him, apart from our connection from him, we're not going to produce this sanctification, this fruit in our lives. Now, do we understand that? that we, we ought to be able to say, I've got that. So let's have the benediction and go home. Not yet, because we haven't come to the main point of what Christ says. I want you to focus for just a moment on John 15, verses 10. It's in the same passage. It's his conclusion. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus says to his disciples, if you keep my commandments, you're abiding in my love. Then he uses himself as an example. In my life, I've kept my father's commandments. I abide in his love. What is he saying? He's saying to Peter, to John, Matthew, I want you to keep my commandments as I've kept the Father's commandments. I want your life to look like my life. That's sanctification. But here's where we come, what I want you to see. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. He said, the reason I'm telling you this, Matthew, John, Peter, the reason I'm telling you is I want my joy to be in you, and I want your joy to be rich, to be full. Does that sound like sanctification, biblical sanctification, leads to an unhappy life? The Lord of glory himself tells us that's not true. The truth is holiness leads you to joy. In John 10, he says this all through scripture. In John 10, verses 10 and 11, he says this. The thief comes, Satan comes, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's unhappiness. That's darkness. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Does that sound like Jesus is calling us, is calling you to a boring and unhappy life? As I said, this is taught from Genesis to Revelation. We read it this morning. You probably missed it. We read it this morning in our responsive reading. The law of the Lord is perfect. What? 
reviving the soul. That's what it does. The testimony of the, of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord, the rules of the Lord that the world says, oh, well, that's it's really unhappiness. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. But here's the crux. More to be, or the result, more to be desired are they than gold. How often have we thought, man, if I just had this, if I just had a million dollars or five million dollars or a billion dollars, how wonderful would that be? And David says, more to be desired are they than gold. This sanctification should be desired. More than money. It brings so much to our lives. It's sweeter than honey. And the drippings of the honeycomb. Do you believe those words? Do you? That's what I'm asking this morning. It's not rhetorical. Do you believe those words? Then you could not possibly believe that holiness is boring and unhappy. David, the one who wrote these words, lived a rich and full life. You would hardly say David lived a boring or unhappy life. In fact, when David strayed from holiness, when he looked at sin and said, that's what I want, that's beautiful, and it will make me happy. He believed Satan's lie and committed adultery. He did a lot more than that. When he did that, thinking sin is beautiful and means happiness, that path led David to a time of sheer misery in his life. You know, at the end of that, in that misery, he cried out in repentance, remember? And what did he say in Psalm 51:12? Lord, restore to me the joy, the joy of your salvation. There's another way Satan uses his lie that true holiness is boring and leads you to happiness. You see, he not only comes to the Christian with the sins of the world to tell us how beautiful and fulfilling they are. He comes to us with ungodly and he comes to the church. This happens more inside the church. Outside the church, Satan comes to us and he says, that way of holiness is really unhappy. It's really restricting. It's really dull and really boring. That usually comes from outside. This usually comes from inside the church. Satan comes with ungodly restrictions. And he says, this is the way to true sanctification. In fact, he uses the pulpits of even conservative churches to perpetrate these lies. Paul talked about it, said this is going to happen. Look at 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. And if, you haven't got, if you're not listening up to this point, look at this, please. Now, the Spirit expressly says, that's the Holy Spirit expressly says, that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences have been seared, who forbid marriage 
and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. What's Paul saying? He's talking to a young pastor. And he says, in later times, as the church grows, some will walk away from the faith, devoting themselves to, notice this, deceitful spirits, and then he makes it plain, and the teachings of demons. This comes from Satan, even though it's been taught inside the church. They will think that they are becoming holier. But in reality, they will be devoting themselves to the teaching of demons. Wow, what is this teaching? The teaching of demons. What is it? Will they teach Christians should take drugs and commit adultery and participate in orgies? That's not what he says here. He says in this case, it will be another kind of lie, a more restrictive lie, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods created to be foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. They will actually take what God has made that's good and right and wonderful that he's just like he gave the garden to Adam and Eve. He'll give us these blessings, blessings of marriage, the blessings of that intimate relationship inside of marriage. The foods that we eat, the drinks that we have, whatever, the good things he's given for man's wealth. He said, don't touch these. Don't go there. They forbid marriage. If you really want to be hopeful, you must, must abstain from marriage or from sexual intercourse inside of marriage. It's actually been taught inside the church. If you want to be truly holy, You'll not eat certain things. Now, the list is long. This is just an illustration that Paul is using. I've just listed a few that have been preached to me over the years. If you want to be truly holy as a woman, you'll not use makeup or jewelry. If you want to be holy, you'll not drink wine or beer or liquor. If you truly want to be holy, you'll not dance. The list is endless. In other words, Satan lies about sanctification by saying, if you really want to be godly, you must not enjoy the good things that God created for man's joy and welfare. Do you understand? I'm not telling you something that's strange. You've all heard this. You've heard it from pulpits. So on the one hand, Satan takes the true ways of holiness and says they lead to boredom and unhappiness. On the other hand, Satan takes what God has made to enjoy and says we must not participate in such things. This has been done in every century. There are ministers and groups in the church in every century that have taught we should sin with abandon in order to enjoy more of God's grace. Grigory Rasputin, the Russian monk and mystic, 
became a part of a religious sect in Russia, a Christian sect in Russia that actually participated in orgies in order to experience the greater grace of God. If you want to, you know, Rasputin would say, if you really want to understand God's grace, go sin more. Then he participated in orgies in doing that. On the other hand, there have been ministers and groups in the church that have created their own laws by misinterpreting scriptures, laws that restrict Christians from enjoying the comforts and benefits that God created for our welfare and happiness. The Shakers were a group that broke away from the Quakers in England in the mid-1700s. They soon after that came to this country. The Shakers forbade sexual intercourse even inside of marriage. Complete celibacy was a true way to sanctification. They taught that. People came in droves to that. I don't know why, but they did. Well, we must come to the end of this. I don't care. You, you know, I, I hope, I wish somebody had preached this message to me and explained this to me when I was six years old, 10 years old, 15 years old. I wish this message had been preached. It would have seriously changed my life. People, this is a great lie. It's the big lie. I hope you leave here today knowing, repenting of even the slightest notion that sanctification and holiness is a dull and boring life. I want to read in closing a quote from Malcolm Mugridge. It comes from Christ in the Media. This is a quote that I often keep. or not, I don't often keep, I constantly keep it where I can see it on a regular basis to remind me of the truth of what we're, we've heard this morning. Mugridge was a journalist he, in his early life, uh, was secular, an atheist, an agnostic, uh, an intellectual uh, all through his life. Uh, he later became, in his adult life, he became a Christian. And when you see a book written by Malcolm Mugridge, I can tell you it's worth reading. And he quotes in this, in, in his quote, he quotes a lady named Simone Vey, who was a French philosopher. I think she died when she was 34. She was uh, not in good health, suffered from ill health, 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 health most of her life. And uh, he quotes her. And so I have put it on your scripture sheet so that you could take it with you, so that you could think about it. And this is, we'll close with this. Here, let me quote some words by Simone Vey, in my opinion, one of the most luminous intelligences of our time. Words which I've often meditated upon and are very relevant. And here's her quote. Nothing is so beautiful, nothing so continually fresh and surprising, so full of sweet and perpetual ecstasy as the good. No desert is so dreary, monotonous, and boring as evil. But 
With fiction, it's the other way around. Fiction, fictional evil, is very intriguing, attractive, and full of charm. And then Mugridge goes on. These words were written a decade or so before television had been developed to attract its huge audiences all over the world, becoming the great fabricator and conveyor of fantasy that has ever existed. Think Super Bowl. Think Super Bowl commercials here. Its offering seems to me to bear out the points Simone Vey was making to a remarkable degree. For in TV, it is invariably eros rather than agape that provides all the excitement. Celebrity and success, rather than a broken and contrite heart, are held up to us as being preeminently desirable. Good and evil, and this is so powerful, underline this, good and evil are like the positive and negative poles of an electric current. Get them mixed up and a darkness falls and a civilization collapses. You get these things turned around, you get them mixed up, and darkness falls, and a life collapses. How do we come away from this message? Our response to this message is singing joy to the world. The Lord has come.